Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished with permission from the excellent podcast Psychologists Off the Clock. That's Psychologists Off the Clock at offtheclockpsych.com. I hope you enjoy the interview. Ever wonder what therapists talk about over coffee? Well, we're three clinical psychologists, Dr. Diana Hill, Dr. Ray Littlewood, and Dr. Debbie Sorensen, and we'd like to welcome you to Psychologists Off the Clock. In this podcast, you'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives. Our webpage is www.offtheclockpsych.com, and there you can find resources we mentioned in this episode, as well as other podcasts we've posted. You can also find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Diana Hill, and today I'm really excited to interview Linda Craighead, who is a professor of psychology at Emory University in Atlanta, and she's also my previous um, graduate advisor. She was, she was my doctoral advisor at University of Colorado at Boulder, where I did my PhD with her, and at that time, I was working in eating disorders in her lab. She currently is the director of clinical psychology training program at Emory University, and she received her BA from Vanderbilt University and her PhD in psychology from the Pennsylvania State University. Prior to moving to Emory, she was at the faculty at Pennsylvania State University at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and the University of Colorado at Boulder. And she's published extensively in the areas of eating disorders and weight concerns. She developed and evaluated an intervention called appetite awareness training, which is what we're going to talk about today. And AAT, or appetite awareness training, is a model that incorporates aspects of mindful eating into uh, self-monitoring um, of hunger and fullness, which we'll talk a little bit more about. And she's described it in her book, The Appetite Awareness Workbook, How to Listen to Your Body and Overcome Binge Eating, Overeating, and Preoccupation with Food. Dr. Craighead teaches workshops nationally and internationally, providing training and application of appetite awareness to a wide range of problems related to eating and weight. And she's currently working on modifying and applying appetite awareness for children and adolescents, um, particularly as a tool to prevent and intervene early in the development of obesity. She's extended her interest in mindfulness through collaboration with the Emory cognitive-based compassion training as well. Hi, Dr. Craighead. It's really good to see you today. It's great to see you too. It's like a young person grown up now. (laughs) I'm very proud to see you in this role and to be able to contribute to your podcast, which I think are a great way to uh, get people up-to-date information about um, what researchers are doing in new directions. So, Congratulations. Yeah. yeah, thank you. And it's, I feel sort of this honor of, it, it is a sort of, sort of in some ways asking this mentor and advisor to come join me in, in this project. And I want to hear more about what you've been doing since I left the University of Colorado, how your research has extended. But I also want to introduce the public that's listening to the podcast to appetite awareness training because Obviously, it's something that I was really drawn to when I was choosing which school to go to and um, your model and how you use it with 
individuals with eating weight concerns feels like it's really relevant and has just continued to, to fit with the model of mindfulness and current methods of treatment for eating disorders, as well as people just struggle with food and weight. So let's start with just talking about what is appetite awareness training and uh, how, how you, how you developed it. Well, the really, it's kind of a long story, but um, I started working with uh, people uh, who were having weight problems initially in a, my postdoc hmm. and was very interested in this because um, I had actually grown up with a fairly healthy model in the house. And I was kind of surprised that when I got to college and graduate school to find out that so many people struggled so much. Hmm. And I was very... Um, taken by the fact that in these obesity treatment programs, people were um, struggling so much with the whole um, feeling of eating and the writing down all the food. Yeah. And I noticed that there were people in there who could lose weight pretty reasonably and pretty easily. And then there were other people who were really struggling with it. And I wanted to understand that better. Mm -hmm. So I was trained really in the traditional methodology of cognitive behavior therapy, which is our, you know, primary evidence-based uh, intervention for both eating disorders and obesity. Mm -hmm. But I was, um, which is based on doing a lot of self-monitoring. And the self-monitoring in these interventions is all about food. Right. It's all about writing down the food, um, not necessarily the calories, but really focusing on the food and looking at the patterns of the food. Mm -hmm. And as a good behaviorist, I found that that sort of struck me the wrong way, mm -hmm. which is that the food is not the behavior ah. that we're trying to mm -hmm. focus on. What we're trying to focus on is the behavior of deciding to start to eat something or keep eating it mm -hmm. and the decision to stop eating. So those were the behaviors that seemed to me we needed to target, not so much the particular foods and whether people were eating the foods. Mm -hmm. So I also found that in my clinical work, people tended to fall into one of two camps. They tended to love food monitoring and over rely on it. And they yes. wanted to write down everything and got very obsessive mm -hmm. or they hated it and they refused to write down anything. And that wasn't helpful either. Right. So I was looking for some way to adapt what I knew was a very powerful behavioral technique, self-monitoring, mm -hmm. probably the single most powerful technique that we have ever developed mm -hmm. because it is our way of increasing awareness. Yes. And yet I felt like it wasn't focused on kind of the most important thing to be aware of, which is why you're starting and why you're stopping. Yes. And there's that so, other component of self-monitoring that we studied when I was there about the preoccupation with food. So if you have a population of people that are already maybe a little bit over-focused on what they're eating and how much they're eating, and then you ask them to start writing it down, it creates even more, maybe even distress around yeah. what they're eating. And we know that distress over eating contributes to more eating problems. So that's the other, you know, the other, how do we help people self-monitor without it being distressing to them, without making them more preoccupied, and then also targeting actually the behavior that they want to target is what, I'm, what you want them to target. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I actually um, got the idea initially from my first child, watching him learn how to eat mm -hmm. because 
he was a model of appetite awareness. He would eat and then he would stop when he was full and it didn't matter if it was in the middle of a piece of cake um, or not. And he was just like, oh, oh, yeah, I'll have some more later. So this seemed very different than my second child who came along who didn't eat that way. Hmm. And I was like, okay, I need to teach people how to eat the way um, my son mm-hmm. naturally ate as yeah. he came to the world. So I started really thinking about trying to understand the way our bodies are intended to eat. Mm-hmm. And that's what led me to the idea that really we have a system here and it's supposed to tell us to eat and it's supposed to tell us to stop. Mm-hmm. And it kind of gets hijacked when we are living in an environment where there's way too much food Mm -hmm. and there's way too much focus on being thin. So neither one of those mechanisms um, are serving very well and people develop their own mechanisms, which are rules and diets and um, all these other kinds of very cognitive approaches. Mm So my main goal was to get people to really eat in a way that was tuned into their body. And that meant paying attention to hunger and fullness, which I thought were still there, Mm -hmm. but that they had been um, sort of suppressed. I had one client who told me hers was 10 feet under concrete. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) that we needed to find a way to make those more salient. So the whole idea of appetite awareness is to tune right back into what's really there all along. What is your natural signal? But that doesn't mean you can't, uh, that that alone is going to be enough. It's just that that's the first step. Right. Right. And that there's something about that concept that when you talk about going back to looking at how your child ate is so intuitive, like, yes, we have a body, we have a body that knows when to start and when to stop. And then there's all these other reasons why we start eating and stop eating that aren't about what our body signals are. And you talk a little bit about those different pathways in your book, um, in terms of the reasons why people start eating, whether it's food available or emotional eating or the what the heck response that you talk about that you coined <laughs> what the heck right um and or did you coin that or did that, that I know it came from some of the anti-deprivation eating work I but, have heard it and I really yeah. don't know where to attribute it to so yeah. Yeah. um when I started saying it I said it a little more strongly but my yeah. editors didn't want that in the book so uh it came out as what the heck yeah so would you and just think that with what is the what the heck eating cycle Right. The what the heck meeting cycle is when you um, eat a little more than you had planned or eat something you didn't plan to eat and you just turn a switch and say, oh, doesn't matter anyway. What the heck? I'll just eat some more. Right. One co- two cookies over is the same as a whole box of cookies over what I had planned. Yeah. And that's a real sort of moving out of listening to that internal signal because at that point, you're just going on having broken a rule as the reason why you're overeating and not listening to that stop signal inside, inside your body. And how do you, so how do you use, maybe you could talk a little bit about what the actual procedures of appetite awareness are and and what they, what it looks like if you were working with somebody on developing this awareness. So the first thing we do is um, talk a lot about sort of psychoeducational information about what hunger and fullness is. And people typically have a sort of inaccurate idea that hunger is a signal like um, 
the gauge on your gas tank and that it actually tells you uh, whether you're empty or full and how much you need. Mm-hmm. Whereas what we do is teach people that hunger is really um, not functioning like that. It's mm-hmm. really a hunt signal. It's mm-hmm. something that evolved to tell you to go seek out food yeah. that um, in old times uh, you needed to do a lot and not necessarily when you were starving mm-hmm. because you might not be very uh, effective in getting food right away. So mm-hmm. that makes hunger a very unreliable signal. It's not like your thermostat that you mm-hmm. can depend on. It, if you get hungry and you get distracted or thinking about something else or you can't find food, mm-hmm. it kind of goes away. Yes. Then it pops back up again. So we call that hunger going underground. Mm-hmm. And that confuses people because that means they don't really know if they're hungry or whether they were hungry or whether they weren't hungry. And it sets up this whole debate about uh, whether or not you are hungry and if you're hungry, you should should you eat. Mm-hmm. So we try to really cut short that debate by saying hunger is simply a signal mm-hmm. and you need to pay attention to it, but it's easily confused with other emotional signals. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, many people have talked about this. There really being two kinds of hunger. We talk about it as biological hunger and psychological hunger. Other people use other terms. But the number one step is to start trying to, um, in the psychological terms, defuse those. In other words, they're not all just hunger. Yes. There's hunger for food and nutrition, and there's hunger for uh, psycho- meeting psychological needs. Yes. And if you don't know the difference you're not going to be able to use hunger as your cue. So the first step is just distinguishing between the hunger that's really from needing to eat or you're you're going to get too hungry and the hunger that is really an urge to eat or a desire to eat or a want to eat for some other reason. Right, right. So it's hard in the beginning to get people to put that off, but we really say that's secondary Uh, to first just being aware so we have people monitor and we use forms there we also now have it on an app where you can use you can do these forms on electronically on your iphone where people mark their hunger before they eat and their fullness after they eat so that they can actually track um how how much change there is and that provides them the guidance to both Remember not to get so hungry that they'll eat too fast and mm-hmm. overeat, which mm-hmm. is our natural response. Again, knowing our understanding our body is that if you skip meals, uh, you are going to get too hungry, and then it's going to be harder to eat a moderate amount. Mm-hmm. You're going to want too much. And then to show at the other end what is just full. Most people have learned to totally ignore their fullness signal because we get served food or it comes in portion sizes and we start learning to rely on those instead of how we feel. Or we've overridden that signal so many times we don't even notice the subtle fullness of being just satisfied. We're used to getting stuffed. Yeah. Right. And most people are really shocked if they do this really for two or three weeks, they really monitor and just pay attention, not try to change anything, just pay attention to how full they're getting. They're like, Oh, I didn't realize I would have been satisfied with probably two thirds of that portion or two thirds of the, or just a few bites of the candy that really wasn't 
that I was so desperate to have the rest of it. Yeah. It was, oh, I, if I really paid attention to my stomach, I could have been satisfied. Right. And that doesn't mean people stop doing it. Mm-hmm. It just means that they've gotten to the first step, which is recognizing that we really do have a fullness signal. Yeah. And we just don't listen to it because I think evolutionarily it was not helpful to listen to it. Right. And so it's a very weak signal. Our hunger signal is very strong. Mm-hmm. We don't ignore if we ignore that, Mother Nature makes sure it keeps getting stronger and stronger until we eat. Mm-hmm. But our fullness signal is really weak because we didn't really need it. So we have to take that signal and blow it up. I think of putting it on a megaphone. Mm-hmm. So now you can really hear it. You can really know when I really did eat more than I needed to eat. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, you kind of move into the second stage, which is trying to um, find other ways to eat when you're not really hungry and other ways to uh, distract yourself and move out of the situation. Once you've heard the signal, then you have to obey the signal. Right. What to do with that, that desire, that craving that I want to do something to get rid of my feeling. And what are you going to do that's non-food to be able to Right. And that's where I think AFT merges into many other therapies Mm -hmm. and approaches um, to deal with eating disorders. I see it as being the first step. And then the hard work is really to figure out other ways to meet those psychological needs. Right. Right. Um, So that's different traditional CBT because traditional CBT sort of works the other way around. They say, Oh, in the beginning, don't pay attention to your hunger and fullness. Just eat normal portion sizes. Well, when I tried to teach people that, they were like, well, what's a portion, normal portion size? And that doesn't give me much guidance, and it doesn't feel very compelling right. to tell people, oh, just eat normal portion size. It feels much more compelling to me to say, really pay attention. The reason you eat three meals and two snacks is so you don't get too hungry, so when you're eating, you can stay tuned in and stop when you're just moderately full. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a structure there of having regular meals and snacks because I think, you know, especially if you've been struggling with food or you've had periods of time where you restricted food or overate food, having some form of a structure like having regular meal times, it, it is part of retraining our bodies. Our bodies are meant to eat at regular times and it helps us get hungry at those regular times. But that structure is within a more flexible model that can move with you. So some, some days you're just not as hungry. It's hot out. It's you have, you've been sick or, you know, maybe you're at a certain time in your cycle and AAT can map onto that and just respond to your natural body's cues. And some days you may be more hungry because you've been more physically active. And so it can map onto that as well. And that's what I really love about the model is that, and this and working with people and using it is that it's something that gets easier over time. Like, you know, sort of like willpower gets harder over time. The AAT model gets easier over time because you're retraining yourself to become more attuned to listening to your body signals. And then it becomes more of just, Oh, I already have, I have this awareness of my body and I can listen to it and use it wherever I am. I can be in Europe. I could be, you know, I don't need to have my specific meal plan or specific foods or whatever to be able to feel like I can have a sense of control around my eating. And 
what I also really like about it is that it applies so well to everything from people that just struggle with a little bit of emotional overeating, which a lot of people, everyone does every once in a while, or maybe have been chronically dieting to people that have, you know, full struggles with eating disorders, um, people who are at risk for eating disorders and also, um, eating disorders like, um, anorexia and bulimia, but also people that struggle with obesity. And so it, it kind of fits, um, it fits within, like you said, the context of other, maybe with, if you have an eating disorder, there's other components to treatment, but entering in first with the AAT model is something tangible that people can do right away to get more of a sense of control over their eating and have a sense of, okay, this is something that I could do for the rest of my life. Um, which I, I just love that it feels really natural and normal as opposed to something that we, you know, I'm going to have to monitor, you know, what type of food I eat forever. Not, not that you have to do that in CBT, but it just fits better. I think with, um, with a, with a model that, that works for people. And I also like how well it fits with my, with mindfulness and all the research coming out. It just is, um, and mindful eating. So do you, is that part, do you incorporate that into the treatment as well? Or? Yeah. In, in fact, I was, I was kind of, um, you know, ahead of myself in the sense that I didn't, didn't think when I was developing it to really call it mindful eating, but actually that is what it is. Mm-hmm. And as soon as people started to really, um, focus more on mindful eating, I really realized that that actually is what it is. It's a form of mindful eating. It's a particular form of mindful eating that emphasizes the sensations of hunger and fullness Yes, a little more so than the part of the mindful eating that is about eating, enjoying the food and paying attention to the tastes and pleasures. But that does supplement it and work very well with it. Mm-hmm. So in fact, now uh, I do call it mindful eating and the um, app that we've developed is called the Mindful Eating Coach. Mm-hmm. Because it's designed to coach you to pay attention to these hunger and fullness signals. And also then, after you monitor hunger and fullness on this app, you rate how mindful you were. Mm -hmm. So that um, you can indicate, oh, I was pretty mindful, which is like a partly cloudy day, Mm -hmm. or there's a sunshine. Oh, I was really mindful. I paid attention. I was enjoying the food. I was able to stop. Or it was kind of a stormy day, and um, I wasn't paying attention. I tuned out. Mm-hmm. And it helps you to connect the lack of mindfulness more generally yeah. to the lack of mindfulness um, with it, with the hunger and fullness right. specific. Right. So it's that inter, we actually did an episode, um, Linda on, on embodiment and interoceptive awareness. Cause it's something that I've gotten really interested in and it, it, it is, it's mindfulness, but it has that component of inner awareness of what's happening inside your body, not just mind because mindfulness can incorporate, you know, I'm looking at the food, I'm noticing its taste and its texture and appreciating this moment of sitting, but that awareness of what's happening inside my body with my hunger and fullness, also what's happening inside my body in terms of cravings or inside my body in terms of emotions, developing a attunement to the inner body is such an important part, I think, of recovery. Because for a lot of people that struggle with eating disorders, they're so focused on outside world, like two eyes out, looking at, you know, 
what other people look like or comparing what other people are eating to what they're eating or following some plan that someone says that this is the best plan. And so it's really a turning back inside again and having mindfulness of this inner world of what, you know, what is it that, what is my hunger hunger like as opposed to the person that's sitting next to me? What is she eating today? And I, I think that, yeah, you were, you were totally ahead of your time. <laughs> you were, you were sort of ahead of the mark on, you know, the mindful eating stuff came out after your appetite awareness work. And, um, I think, I think there, there is something that's unique about your work over, you know, that, but it's, that also is part of the bigger umbrella of mindfulness. Um, I agree. So, and I think the interesting point you make there about, um, turning into your body and and the way it kind of works for people more on the eating disorder spectrum or is it almost works in the other direction for people on the more overeating overweight spectrum Mm. is that they are not paying enough attention to their body um, either for Mm. different reasons what they are doing is tuning out you know pretending they don't think about the food um, really distancing themselves from it yeah uh, then than preoccupied with it like eating disorder people and they need to pay more attention to actually what they're eating and how it's feeling in their body Mm -hmm. just as much as the um, people with eating disorders and I actually think they have a harder time um, not thinking that food is all about their body they're thinking about food is all about their mouth right right yeah what so at, at one of the most important things we say in appetite awareness is that it's eating below the neck Yeah, that you can eat with your head, which is what you think you want, what you think tastes good, or you can eat with your stomach, which is you can decide what's going to feel good. And then you can pay attention and see if it actually does feel good. Right. Right. And that's where it, it sort of naturally progresses into choosing foods that feel more nourishing or that satisfy you longer or that give you sustainable energy as opposed to choosing something that kind of maybe doesn't make you feel so good or you get hungry really soon afterwards. And that's part of, I think, that the process of if you stick with appetite awareness training, you become also more attuned to what types of foods work for you. And I love your model of the worth it, not worth it foods, you know, or at what point in the eating process of, you know, eating that piece of cake did just the icing not be worth it anymore. It just started getting gross, but maybe the first couple of bites, it was good. And it's a nice, again, you get to use your own signal and your own system to understand that of, okay, so you can be like the two-year-old that leaves half the cake on the plate because you got to the point of it just not being worth it to keep mm-hmm. eating just it to- later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's a very important point because um, you really can't tell people you know, what's worth it or not worth it. They have to actually learn it from their own experience. And people initially don't believe that they are going to actually change their preferences once they're paying attention, but they do almost Mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. I can't even think of anyone who hasn't, but, and we call that step the food awareness training Mm -hmm. because, but you have to wait and do that after you've got this hunger fullness training because you'll get confused between the two and you have to always pay attention to the amounts and then you start paying attention to the types of food and how they make you feel. And then we actually even give a little, you know, uh, educational talk about blood sugar and how different kinds of nutrients make your blood sugar go up and down and how Mm -hmm. some people are more sensitive to that than others. And that that's part of the 
food awareness part of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it has, again, a very different approach than this is good food, this is bad food. Right. Right. It's a lot more subtle than that. For people to notice is when we do food awareness um, training, we have people um, put a line down their uh, food monitoring and one side's worth it and one side's not worth it. Mm -hmm. And what they must do is not not put a food all on one side or the other, Mm. that very often they have to divide it up and say the first brownie was worth it. Yeah. The second and the third brownies weren't worth it. Right. right. So it's not brownie. Right. It's the amount of it. Sometimes it's just the food like, oh, I had the wontons and I didn't really care that much about it. Right. So they can all go on the not worth it. Right. Or I had a glass of wine and I really enjoyed it. So it's on the worth it side. Yeah. Even though it might not be on too many diet plans. Right. Um, but the most important lesson for people to learn is that a little bit of food can be worth it. Whereas a lot of food, no matter what kind of food it is, is usually not worth it. Right. And that helps break up that dichotomous good, bad food thinking. Right. And we really have to work at developing that skill, I think, in the environment that we live in now. Because everything is almost designed to go against <laughs> against that for us in terms of portion sizes and, you know, what, what people serve at a restaurant. We need to develop our own skill of being able to understand our bodies and what is worth it. Where am I going to stop and be able to use that as a tool that you can take anywhere with you? And it just takes some awareness and that, like you said, the food awareness component after you've gotten a sense of your hunger and fullness to get there. Um, So tell me a little bit about, I'm I'm curious because you mentioned that appetite awareness is a, is a, a treatment or a component that you can apply to a lot of different treatments. And when I was at um, CU Boulder, we were working with it. Um, in combination with DBT and um, for bulimia. And where have you got, I know you did some prevention training, uh, prevention, a lot of prevention work with college students. Where have you been going in terms of research more recently with the AAT model? We have been uh, focusing more on using it with uh, sort of normal range overeating uh, as opposed to the, the clinical diagnoses because yeah. We basically did, you know, a couple of studies that show with clinical diagnoses, you can substitute the appetite awareness monitoring for the food monitoring, Mm -hmm. and um, it does not um, make the impact any worse. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily a lot better, but it's, generally speaking, way more acceptable to the client. So you often get people to do it who will not do the standard CBT. Right. And to the therapist, I will say. It's a contribution in clinical domain is providing an alternative that is more um, client friendly clients buy the rationale. Yeah. It's hard for clients to, to buy the rationale. Like, Oh, I just need to eat three meals and two snacks. Well, why? Right. Right. Uh, It's not a very compelling reason, but if you can explain it in terms of, okay, that's the the best way to make sure that you don't get too hungry and binge, then it makes more sense to them and they're more willing to do it. So when people, eating disorders, the the single most important uh, technique is to get them to eat regular meals, however you do it. Right. And I think, the- yeah, and the, the other component of people not wanting to write down their food or their binges 
and bring it in and show it to somebody. I think there's a lot of shame in that. And it's, there's, it's really hard to do that. So the other part of it is destigmatizing and there's like no shame. It's like I over, you know, here's my big binge. I went to a seven. I'm going to mark that on. I can come talk about the emotions and all the stuff around it. And we could work into talking about if it helps to talk about what the person ate to help with decreasing shame, but having them go home and monitor that on their own, I think is really hard for people to do. You're right. A lot of people have started out telling me I will, you know, I will not monitor the food, Right. but they will do the appetite monitoring. And then when they get their binging under control and they're ready to start actually talking about possible weight loss or whether they want to think about weight loss, then they're more willing to write down the food because they're not eating such uh, overly large amounts. And uh, that's been an important thing. But so what we feel like is that appetite monitoring is really by in itself, you know, separate from these more large clinical packages, which really have to deal with the incredible emotion, um, three emotional issues that go along with eating disorders, that by itself, it's really um, most directly targeted to sort of normal weight or slightly overweight people who need to eat more mindfully mm-hmm. and to uh, not gain weight mm-hmm. and to feel more comfortable with their eating. So we have worked with it with college, uh, most recently with college women who are really not needing to lose weight, even if they think they do. Right. And <laughs> we are adapting it to um, weight loss programs where people need to lose weight for medical reasons, generally diabetes and hypertension, but also mm-hmm. knee pain, mm-hmm. so that we use it as a way to help people feel more okay about the need to lose weight and do it in a way that is more um, less rigid mm-hmm. and fitting in with their lifestyle so they're more likely to maintain it. Mm-hmm. And then most recently what I've, uh, I'm doing is I'm trying to, um, well, I have uh, a draft out now ready and hopefully it will be out sometime in the next year or so, uh, and an adaptation for children and adolescents. I say really sort of ages 8 to mm. 15. Um, it's kind of a fun um, reading book that parents can work with their children with. And the idea behind that is we know that the greatest increase now in obesity is happening right in that age range. Yeah. And it has gone from, I just saw the statistic, it's gone from 7% in 1980 to uh, 18% in 1912, yeah. I mean, in 2012. Yeah. So that's the age at which we need to teach these, catch these children and teach them to eat in line with their appetite because uh, that's the point at which they're moving out of eating at home all the time. Their right. parents don't have all the control. And so they have to take over some of the control. And if they have are not given any training in how to do that, they are just going to go along with what tastes good, what their friends are eating, right. and what's available, which is not going to be very healthy. Or they are going to notice that they start gaining weight and they're going to turn to dieting. Right. Which then will set up a whole another slew of not being able, you know, not listening to their hunger fullness or put at risk for eating disorder or put at risk for obesity and that whole chain of events. So what what are what are suggestions for, you know, I'm a parent of two little ones, um, what would be your suggestions around helping them? Cause right now they eat totally normally and mm-hmm. I want that to be for their lives. What, what would you suggest in terms of parent for parents to support that in their children? 
I think the the most important thing is that the parent kind of model this and um, start using some of that vocabulary. So like when you stop or when you, you're eating something and you stop and you say, oh, yeah, I really I'm, I'm full enough. I don't really need any more. Mm. Um, or if you're out and it's time to eat. Uh, that you say, oh, yeah, it is time to eat. I'm feeling a little bit hungry. I need to eat now. Mm-hmm. So when they ask for food, if it's appropriate times, just say, oh, that's good. I'm glad I, you noticed that you were hungry. Let's have something to eat. So that the conversation is always about linking the food mm-hmm. to hunger and fullness. Mm-hmm. And then as they get older and they start to want to to eat for other reasons to again start labeling it that way mm. say oh you know let's check in with your stomach are you what do you think are you really hungry uh we just had lunch um i'm wondering if you just want something to do or you're yeah. just bored yeah and sort of start drawing their attention to the fact that um they can want to eat for other reasons and they can start noticing that and not doing that, you know, going ahead and finding something else. Yeah. Yeah. Something I sometimes do with my kids when they, cause often they want the snack like 20 minutes before dinner, you know, right? because it's, you know, it's dinner time. So they're getting hungry. And so one thing that we talk about is that how food tastes better when you're a little bit hungry. And mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that, that I think there's actually a little bit of a setup of that. Sometimes we get afraid of hunger too, that it's okay in those early stages to wait 20 minutes when you know you're going to have a meal. It's just that when you get so hungry or if the hunger goes underground that it becomes problematic. So like in your model, keeping it in that moderate hunger range and having dinner be in a moderate hunger range, because that's good. The food will taste better when you're hungry. And then also noticing, okay, because I mean, I think even at even at these young ages, still the children will overeat every once in a while. Like there's, you know, birthday cake or something and just bring your attention to that. Like, how did that feel for you? That, you know, uh, or I'll say, Oh, my tummy feels, you know, a little full. And, Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds like taught, like you said, modeling and talking about these internal signals to help children stay tuned into them because they already are tuned into them when, you know, when they're newborns and early on, but using that language to keep them tuned in and discriminating between what is the hunger signal versus a boredom signal, or I just want something to eat. And that would sound good while I'm watching a movie kind of, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So what is in, in your, in your draft of the treatment for children, what does that workbook look like? Or is there, are there some differences between that and the manual that you have out? It is pretty different in the sense that, um, Oh, one, we kind of simplify the scale. So we really just talk about a five point scale. We have, mm-hmm. we call it the hunger meter. Oh. And it, and also all we're telling children is don't get starving, don't get stuffed. Ah, yeah. Not to make too many fine discriminations in the middle. Mm-hmm. So the instructions to them are really simple. Just don't get starving, don't get stuffed. And, you know, think about it. If you're in the middle um, most of the time you're going to want to do something else than eat when you're not really that hungry. Yeah. yeah. So it sort of brings it down to really two things mm-hmm. so that we don't have to go into a whole lot of uh, complicated yeah. uh, jargon about hunger and fullness, but just really kind of two guidelines. Yeah. Then we, we do the worth it, not worth it with them. We have a picture of a scale mm-hmm. and um, the, um, um the little puppy who's doing this is weighing them mm-hmm. and saying, um, 
okay, what, what's my choice? Eat, drink soda, drink milk, Mm -hmm. drink, eat two cookies and milk or eat six cookies, Mm -hmm. Um, eat fried food or eat baked chips. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of helping them. The second thing is if you're, when you're going to eat to choose, you know, more nutritious foods, more of the time, but mm-hmm. not all of the time. And we make a distinction between nutritious snacks and treat foods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because what we don't want kids to feel like is they can't have a snack if they get hungry. Right. It's perfectly fine. Right. But that that snack shouldn't be a candy bar. Right. Right. Uh, although every once in a while you have a candy bar just for fun. Right. Exactly. Trying to make it a little bit simpler and, um, I think the most fun thing is at the end, then we have the little mindful eating dog who's sitting there uh, contemplating his bowl Mm -hmm. because the uh, idea is to stop and think, are you hungry? Mm -hmm. Um, Are you really full? Are you just wanting to eat for other reasons and what food would be worth it? So we're trying to make it a little bit simple, Mm -hmm. but also kind of fun. Mm -hmm. So at the point that, Um, just like when you have a pet, you don't give them everything they want. So have this, you don't give a puppy a treat every time it begs. Right. Right. And how to care for your body in the same way that you would care for a pet or something else. You know, I think children, children understand that. Children do understand that. Well, it's been so wonderful to, first of all, it's just really nice to see you and reconnect with you. Um, and we stay connected via our Christmas cards every year. So it's good to <laughs> keep on sending those and getting them. And it's yeah, just really um, fun to hear really about yeah. how your model has progressed, because I feel like it just keeps on um, kind of homing more and more in on what, you know, what is sort of the essence of appetite awareness training? It feels like really on target to how I use it in my practice, just out here in the clinical world, no longer in the research world, um, using it as a means to just help people get back in touch with their hunger and fullness. I love the monitoring forms. I'm excited to explore the app because that's going to make things just easier than my color printer. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and also just more handy for people out and about. So the app's title is The Mindful Eating Coach. And is it up and ready for people to use? I know you were kind of still working on it and testing it. Is it is on the um, um, iPhone store Okay. Uh, for free. It, it has a few little tweaks we need to put in with instructions, but it's perfectly functional as it is. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty self-evident. Uh, although if someone has any questions, they can always email me and, uh, and ask me about it. But it is simple, too. It's just... Uh, we had to simplify things a little bit from the paper forms. So yeah. sometimes more serious problems, I still use the paper forms. Yeah. But for, you know, sort of run of the mill and, you know, more young people just trying to get a feeling of control over their eating, I think it's a, it can stand alone. It's a good place to start. And so for, um, for, I'll put a link to that in our show notes, as well as a link to your book, the appetite awareness workbook. And, um, maybe a link to your lab or, you know, your connection at um, Emory. And then I think that also just to remind people, if there is more disordered eating happening, that this would be the, this would be the place to 
look for a professional, get support, um, and a professional could work with you within, you know, using appetite awareness as a part of a larger treatment. Um, because I think that especially with disordered eating, if there's anorexia, bulimia, binge eating happening, having a treatment protocol and program that addresses some of the emotional component and additional to the appetite awareness is really important. And I'll put um, a link to maybe some resources for that on our website as well. Yes, I think that's a great idea because we want people to use it in a way that's helpful to them, but not to assume that it's going to address a much you know, larger um, uh, emotionally based problem that uh, may need a little more guidance. Right, exactly. Okay, well, thank you so much. Have a good Thanks. rest of your day. And I look forward to talking with you again soon. All right, thank Bye. you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.